This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Ruhi Lee, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. I'm super excited. I mean, I'm I'm I've been excited about chatting with you all morning. So I'm <laughs> I'm pleased, pleased we're connected. And uh, you're in Melbourne, are you? Yes. Yes. So Ruhi grew up. Oh, there we go. It's in the intro. Ruhi grew up in Melbourne, <laughs> writer who has been published in the Guardian. ABC Life and SBS Voices, amongst other publications. In 2019, her manuscript was shortlisted for the Penguin Random House Writer Fellowship, and in 2020, she became a commissioned writer for the Multicultural Arts Victoria Shelter Program. She recently published her first book, a memoir called Good Indian Daughter, where she unpacks her childhood growing up with the expectations of her Indian family. I mean, it is such a wonderful book on all levels. It's it's painful, it's funny, it's raw, it's emotional, really, really honest. That means so much coming from you, Cheryl. Thank you. (laughs) Okay, so firstly, I want to start about how you came to writing and then I want to talk about the memoirs. So can we do that? So tell me about growing up. You grew up in Melbourne, I'm assuming. Yes. Uh, So I actually didn't do a whole lot of reading at all as a child. Um, We just didn't have that many books on our shelves growing up. The only thing I remember reading was a novel by Enid Blyton that my cousin had on it on her shelf. Um, but yeah, apart from that, there wasn't reading wasn't a huge part of my childhood, but storytelling still was. Mm-hmm. Uh, my mum and my grandma are just insane storytellers. They'll just suck you in <laughs> in a few seconds. And around a lot of Bollywood movies as well. So I wasn't allowed to watch things like Home and Away and Neighbours that my friends were watching, but um I watched a lot of uh, Bollywood movies growing up and they're pretty dramatic and humorous. And I think when I finally did decide decide to start writing, I tried to bring that into the way I crafted the story. I had this sort of Bollywood-esque kind of, <laughs> what's the word? Um, influence. Influence, yeah, yeah, as I was writing. I'm going to stop you there for a minute and I'm going to talk about the fact that you didn't grow up with books because there is so much emphasis on literacy and reading and I absolutely agree with all of it. You yeah. Know, there's no yeah. doubt about that. But I didn't grow up with books either. My love of books, I had to source my books. I had to go out and get them, you know. It wasn't that they were there because culturally my parents won you know, my mother was illiterate, you know, um, she was taken out of school at 12 to support the rest of her family. Um, mm. And, you know, the real hardship, yeah. they came, yeah, exactly. But like you say, they were amazing. It wasn't, because we didn't have book, it didn't mean we didn't have story. 
Yeah. We had a lot of story. You know, mm. my mother set a table and probably like yours, every night, you know, we'd sit at the table as a family. Like we ate together for most of the, my life at home, you know. Yeah. And that's where story came, you know, where you talked. Mm. And so it's really interesting because I think literacy definitely comes from reading, but lis- literacy, and, you know, we've got audiobooks now, it comes from listening to stories, mm. listening to people tell stories as well. Do you agree? Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Uh, like reading is really important now with my daughter and we've, she, her bookshelf is full yeah. of amazing children's books. But for me, it wasn't, it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't prioritized. And then a couple of times I did go to the local library. I got told off by my dad because I ended up racking $80 fines. And like <laughs> one time I had a fine that was over a hundred dollars and he's like, you need to return them on time. Um, so it didn't go down well. (laughs) No, I can imagine. Libraries, I think, have changed quite a bit since then. Yeah. When you finished school, so I want to know exactly what the path was to writing. At what point did you think you were going to be a writer? There was a writing competition in grade two and I came third place for that. And then I just never thought about it again because creativity wasn't prioritized in our household it was all about math science English uh and as you know from the book my my university course was chosen for me and so I was just going down this path that my parents had mapped out for me and it was only after I had my daughter that I took up writing for two reasons so that was when I was 28 so 2018 only a couple of years ago. And I was watching Jane the Virgin. Have you seen that? No. no. Uh, it's an awesome TV show. And every time she sits down to type, because she's she's a writer, um, there's just wind blowing in her hair and she's glowing and she's just feeling all this joy. And I sort of looked at that and thought, I feel like I would feel that if I sat down to write. And so I started writing partly just to give it a shot and also as sort of therapy because I was seeing a counsellor at the time about all the family issues that had come up. So I didn't write to write a book necessarily, uh, but when I started doing it, I was just getting a lot of joy from it. And that's when I started doing courses and workshops with Writers Victoria, Australian Writers Centre and some other online courses. And it started to turn into a book, I guess. And I did the hard copy program in Canberra with uh, the um, the ACT Writer Centre. Yep. And that's when things started to get serious because they called me back for the second round to present the manuscript to publishers and agents to get feedback. And they were all so encouraging and they just said, you know, um, have more confidence in your voice. So I went back and worked on it submitted it to different publishers and a firm picked it up. So that's that's how I came to writing. It's I didn't have a formal background in it, but I loved it and I was really grateful for the resources that were available. Do you think you've got another story in you? Like do you think this will um, perhaps be the beginning of writing fiction? Or Yes, yeah. Oh, you do? Okay. Yeah, I love it. And I'm yeah. working on a work of fiction at the moment, but I think writing my memoir was... It sort of enabled me to clear out the things that I needed to get out there. Like I felt very passionately about women who were going through similar things that I went through. And I know there's so many out there in terms of parental expectations and perfectionism and 
growing up with a different kind of patriarchy because there's lots of great books on feminism, but you can only relate to so much of it. It's very different growing up in an Asian or a South Asian family and you deal with different types of struggles. So I felt compelled to write about this because I felt very lonely in it growing up and I'm hoping to make someone else feel less lonely, I guess, in that Mm. experience. Uh, So now that I've cleared all of that out, I feel like my imagination's freed up to now try fiction. So talk to me about the book because a lot of listeners, they don't know the story. Talk to me about your memoir, your life. So the memoir begins with me at the age of 27 finding out through an ultrasound that I was pregnant with a girl. And initially I felt a small pang of gender disappointment, which ended up becoming overwhelming and all-consuming. And down the track, I started to ask myself, why is this such a big deal to be having a daughter? Like, I don't know why I'm reacting so badly to this, why there's this sense of doom about, you know, me ruining her life. And it was only after a whole lot of therapy, reading books and listening to podcasts on parenting and on feminism that I started to figure out my fear had nothing at all to do with my daughter's gender and everything to do with what I was conditioned to believe about girls and women growing up. And so it wasn't the fear of having a baby. It was the fear mm, of having a girl. Yes. Yeah, correct. Yeah. And it was because of how I saw myself as a woman and and it was through a lens of disappointment. And I, I think I was just really worried about recreating conditions where she becomes another me and I didn't have a lot of self-esteem back then. So it came, the peace came from unpacking all of the physical, psychological, sexual abuse from my childhood that I had shoved under the rug for so many years. And I did that in therapy. And then eventually as the book goes along, the question then becomes less about the gender of my child because I made peace with that. And then the question becomes about whether I wanted to continue having a relationship with my family who I loved, but all the abuse sort of happened on their watch and I had to come to terms with that. Um, Yeah. Mm. There's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Um, I want to talk about gender. You know, it was really interesting because I feel very, very female, you know, Mm. I feel, and I understand a lot of people don't, you know, Mm. um, But I also really love being a woman. I loved being a girl. I loved everything that came with it. And very recently I had some friends around for dinner, women, um, and Mm. I happened to say that in the context of something, something came up and I said, yeah, you know, I think it was just about being gender fluid. And I said, I I understand that it's not for everybody, but gosh, I feel lucky that I'm a girl. Mm. And you know, all my friends were aghast. They're like, mm. no, if I had a choice, I'd be, I wouldn't be a woman. Mm. Oh, wow, isn't that interesting? That really, do you know, and at my age, not a lot shocks me, right? Yeah. <laughs> but that <laughs> threw me entirely. It yeah. really shocked me. And also I felt like they thought I was a bit trivial for having said that, you know, because mm. um, I, was, I was hugely disappointed. I really, it really rattled me for a few days. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. What was what was going through your mind? Um, that why don't we have, why can't we be loud and proud as females? Like sometimes mm. I think with everything that's going on, we're the lowest in the order. And why is that? That's just 
everything seems to move up all priorities or causes or whatever <laughs> seem mm. to knock us back even do you feel that to knock us back even further and I think why is that we are strong we are equal we are you know of course I'm not going to go into all the things that we are but you know yeah. sometimes the perception is that we don't carry as much much value as others yeah yeah and so much of that is systemic I suppose yeah. like it would be easier to do basically anything <laughs> except I suppose for the professions where there are more women in them yes. it's just everything so much easier if you're a man but I wonder if your friends meant that from the point of view like I mean that's such a loaded thing <laughs> like it, isn't it? from what isn't point it? of view were they thinking they'd rather be a man like from a physical point of view or like professionally yeah um yeah I'm not sure interesting I didn't go into it because I was so taken aback by it I do think though I mean I you know um Lebanese Australian family I got I've got five sisters and my brother and of course he's the youngest and the pressure on my mother to have a boy was tremendous and that's why she kept having children so you know that definitely was there it didn't seem to perturb me you know I didn't really notice that until I grew up because I just loved being a kid I loved being a girl I loved being a teenager and I loved being a woman um but when I look at it now I I realize he didn't love us so much you know for those reasons Mm -hmm. and I guess if I was to <laughs> unpack, I'd be writing a memoir as well. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> it's it makes me deeply sad that this is still going on, that you at 27 having a daughter is still something that you think about. Yeah. Um, obviously it doesn't bother me anymore. I absolutely love her to bits and of course would have another five daughters if I wanted to have more kids. Yeah. But yeah, I think um I suppose for me. It was more to do with being told or being made to feel that I was too emotional, too complex, too. It didn't seem that hard for my cousins who were males. Um, Like they weren't sort of critiqued just for being who they were. And there was so much that I wasn't allowed to do either. And so anytime just me living my life meant breaking rules as opposed to just living even just to love someone that I wanted to love, like, no, you're not allowed to. You know, I used to get told growing up that girls had to have long hair. And so, you know, I've chopped it all off now (laughs) Um, just to like, because I couldn't be bothered with long hair after having my child. Um, But when people would be coming over when I was a kid, it's like, go put on some jewellery. Like we just, just just because I'm a girl. Um, And I just... (sighs) I don't know, there was just always this sense of discomfort. I never felt comfortable at home in my own where I'm supposed to feel safe. And so I think I sort of projected that onto my daughter who I was pregnant with thinking, what if she's, what if she is as complex as me? What if she is always struggling, like always having this internal struggle and I can't help her just like how my parents couldn't help me. So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't to do with her being a girl so much as how would I manage this? Like, how would I manage a little girl? And I was really naive to think that, oh, boys are so much easier. Um, I think it's only easier because parents treat it that way. 
um, oh, in my culture anyways. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I really, I don't think there's any difference, you know, whatsoever mm. in raising children. I mean, you know, you just, just, all you need to do is understand the differences because there are differences, but you mm. just manage those as you go. What would be your hope for her? It's a big question. Mm. Um, mm. My hope is that she would feel a much greater sense of freedom growing up and being an adult in the world, um, that she would grow up to be compassionate and respectful towards other people, but that that wouldn't hinder the amount of respect she affords herself because it did for me as well. Um, And I think if she has more confidence in herself uh, is able to be herself, is able to exist in the world as she really truly is, like in an authentic way. I think it'll be uh, a lot easier to be able to lift other people as she climbs um, because she, I basically want her to get to a place where she's thriving because of her childhood and she's not recovering from her childhood. Oh, I love that. That's nice. Mm. Mm, that's a great summary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now, like myself, you would have experienced not just gender discrimination, but which I've got to say I was always oblivious to until I became an adult. Mm. I was more attuned to um, racial discrimination. Mm. And that happened to me a lot, you know. I, I mean, I'm older than you and, and the, you know, the world was not so forgiving back then. Um, yeah. And so we grew up in inner city Glebe, which was very, very white at the time. And the moments that I remember in my childhood are really largely about racism, like the, you know, the time we were told to get off the bus because we were wogs, you know, with my mother. Yep. <sighs> I know. Terrible. So sorry um, to hear that. Terrible. Oh, and being called a wog and being very aware of the term, which I loathed all my life. Yeah. Um, but just being different. People often say to me, and I think only white people can say this, you know, but didn't you want to embrace the difference? Well, mm. sure I did, but nobody else did. Yeah, exactly. Right. You know, and I was, you know, rocking up to school with, you know, Lebanese bread and falafel rolls and all those things that I wish somebody would make me now for lunch. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, but at the time I was pretty, you know, I, it wasn't something that I was loud and proud about. Yeah. Um, did you feel that? Oh, yeah. Like before I even got those Vegemite sandwiches that I wrote about in the book, like my parents, do you know what chapatis are? Yes, I do. And I yeah. love them. 
yeah, my parents would roll up pale, which is like a, um, it's not really a stew, but it's just vegetables thrown together with spices, really delicious. And they would just roll them up in my chapatis, put them in cling wrap and yum. put them in my lunchbox. And they were yum. But uh, the kids next to me would be like, ew, what is that? Like, yeah. it's so gooey, it smells, you know, and just being so critical of everything that was different about me, which was yes. all Indian, you yes. know, and I wish I was prouder of my identity and I wish I hadn't changed myself to suit other people's ideas of what I should be. But I did because I was a kid, you know, yeah, just do what you have did. to do to survive in the playground. Yeah, yeah, we did. Um, yeah, but yeah, it was tough. Like you're always different for being, for coming from the culture you come from. And it was only when I was a lot older that I could appreciate it. And now I always crave my mum's cooking, but School is tough. Yeah, I do. Um, I do cook. I love cooking and I do do Indian cooking as well, but I'm often pretty upset with the way it turns out because I'm always comparing myself to my mum. <laughs> um, i got to tell you, it doesn't end as you get older. It was interesting. I had some girlfriends around for dinner on Monday night. So Monday night, right, work day and everything else. And so I put together a meal and it was a lovely meal. Um, but Gay said to me, I mean, my girlfriend said to me, I was really hoping for tabbouleh, hummus and kofta. And I was like, really? <laughs> On a Monday night, were you hoping for that? Do you know how much work that, that requires? That's a Saturday night meal, right? Yeah. But then when I look back on it, my mother did work. She had a corner shop, right? And yeah. she still put down those meals on the table for yeah. eight people every wow. night. Six wow. Six kids and two adults. Yeah. It's extraordinary, isn't it, the work that they did? Yeah. Mm. And I suppose, like, it was probably, like, we have more choices in terms of what we want to cook, what sort of cuisine. Uh, my mum just only ever cooked South Indian. Was it like that with your mum? Oh, yeah. With Lebanese yeah. food? Yeah. 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 Just and, like, and, no, yeah. And when she tried, one time she made burgers and they were awful. And I'm thinking, you know what, just stick to what you know. <laughs> yeah. How brutal is that? Anyway. <laughs> children, right? Yeah. No filter. <laughs> oh my gosh, I was like that too with my mum. I mean, I'll make the pasta. You you make the rice and chapatis. That's right. But but yeah, like it, it, I'm so glad she did go to all that trouble there because it it was such a huge part of holding on to our Indian heritage, and it was delicious. And it is, and it is that. And I was going to say that. And do you know, and you, you've had the same experience, but it wasn't all bleak. One of my fondest memories of being little and growing up in Glebe, and you'll have many mm. stories to tell about this as well. My mother used to discover um, vine leaves in people's gardens, mm. right? You know, and of course, stuffed vine leaves was one yes. of her specialties. So she would get us to go around and knock on the neighbor's doors and ask them if we can pick the leaves. And of course, you can just imagine back then, they didn't have a clue what they were for. <laughs> And they would just say, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, and they just thought we were the weirdos down the street. But uh, she then would make them and then make a pot for the neighbour that gave us the leaves and then we would oh, take that over. That's lovely. And they're beautiful connections. And I, I don't have those experiences were so beautiful and so pleasant and it was such a reaching out like those neighbours just valued it so much. Mm. Isn't that yeah. lovely what food can do? Yes. 
I feel like food and music are the great things that connect people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And story, I think. And story. story. Oh, yes, of course. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so with that you're writing and with writing such a confrontational, well, no, that's not the right word, honest, I'd say, with mm. writing your honest memoir, were you worried about what your family were going to think? That, I think, is the biggest fear uh, for memoir mm. writers is what are the people, how are they going to feel, how are they going to react? Because all our perceptions are our perceptions, aren't they? Yeah, um, and I think it was Anne Lamott who said, I'm going to paraphrase this massively. If people wanted you to write different things about them, they should have behaved better. Um, wow. Wow. So, I mean, my family, my family's response was like, I told my parents, I'm writing this memoir. It's been acquired by a publisher. And I feel really strongly about putting it out there for other women who have gone through similar things. And I said, I'm going to be changing everybody's name. So, um, you know, hopefully nobody connects it to you, but I am going to be very honest. Like everything is in there, including the stuff about my uncle, et cetera, et cetera. And um, they were like, okay, as long as you're changing our names and doing everything you can to like protect, protect our identity, we're not going to push back on that. And I was actually very grateful because I sort of, when it sort of came to, discussing publicity and things like that I had to be honest with them and say there might you know there might end up being pictures of me on the internet or you know people might join the dots and realize who you are like that is a risk that you need to be aware of and by then my parents were so gracious and they said we've seen you work on this for a couple of years now like you've put a lot of hard work into it and if this is the life path you want to go down we don't want to stand in the way of that and stop you from having that career so I was very very grateful for that but I don't think they've I haven't given them the manuscript because they haven't asked for it like I said oh that's what I was going to ask you have they read it no so I don't think they want to to be like I think it's very uncomfortable for them Mm. um and in real life, it's still very uncomfortable to talk about any of this stuff, forget about it being in a book. So I think they're sort of keeping a distance from it, which I respect and can understand. And if they decide to pick it up one day, they're doing it at their own risk. Like they probably don't realise how much I swear. Um, <laughs> but that's also to do with not being able to be authentic around them. Mm. Um, did you worry about, like, say, for instance, if your mum had read it, did you worry about that? Well, not really, because I thought if they do end up reading it, hopefully they'll get a small sense of who I really am yeah. um, without having to perform according to their expectations. And if they still like me after that, then great. <laughs> and if they want to burn the book, that's their choice. Mm. So, yeah. Do you know um, what I go through as well, not that I am going to write my memoir, but because there are so many of us, you know, I've got four sisters and a brother, mm. um, the accuracy of our memory. Like, you know, mm. uh, there's a story that I often tell on this podcast, you know, where we're, you know, we were migrants and we were living on top of a butcher and, you know, we were in one room, not one bedroom, mm. one room in a kitchen and, and my mum had bought us cozies. Anyway, long story, and, yeah. and we were swimming, right, <laughs> you know, yeah. in the apartment of which there was no water. But that is a magical memory for me. Right. Yeah. And I still swim to this day in water. Yeah. But my sister 
for her, one of them in particular, because we've spoken about it, she's like, well, no, that's a poverty memory for me. I hate that. Oh, yeah. 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 Did you think about that? Yeah. Yeah. So that was like something I was very, very aware of. Um, And I only have one sibling to check my facts against. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But that was really handy and having her sort of validate those experiences. And of course, like there are things you see through different lenses, but um, knowing that there's someone else, someone there to back up that it happened because, you know, I talk about this in the book, there was a lot of gaslighting yeah. um, and just like rewriting the history in two seconds, you know, and it wasn't even, you know, it wouldn't have even been premeditated. Like we just lie, you know, you just, lies just fall out of your mouth just to cover your ass and like, you know, not have to get in trouble. So there would be things that happened and, my mum would be like, no, that didn't happen, you know, and it's like, what? I, I I just saw it and you'd sort of be questioning your insanity. Like I'm pretty sure I saw that happen. Um, and so my sister had had a few of those experiences too. So I checked everything against um, her memory as well and um, with my husband because he's been around since I was 17. So, I, yeah, I did have to run things by people to make sure I was remembering it correctly. But, again, like I see it through my own lens and my parents have a much more rose-tinted lens when looking back on my childhood. So the only things I could go to them to check were things to do with our language or um, our family traditions. Mm. But, uh, you know, there were times when I said, do you remember this happening? And they'd be like, no, that never happened. Mm. And, you know, it could be a suppression thing, but it could also be that they don't want to remember it. And even though they do remember it, they don't want to talk about it. And so it's like a quick shutdown. Mm. So, yeah, I was very aware of that. Um, And it does make things tricky. It does. It does. And sometimes, you know, it's even cultural. I often Mm. say, you know, I mean, a lot of people hang on to parents' behaviour and family dynamics and you bring two people together and then they have children and they're expected to perform. I mean, that's a huge gig. A friend of mine just Mm. uh, took on a rescue dog in France. Yeah. He had to attend before they would give him a dog, of which he had been a dog owner before, he had to attend three training classes. He had to go and, you know, I mean, it was intense. They had to interview him and his partner um, before they would hand that dog over. And I think, well, we don't have that as as the luxury of that as parents, you know. Mm. I feel that sometimes they're only doing, well, a lot of them, uh, the best they possibly can or what they know. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I think the same thing of my parents, like Mm. I do, I do wish things were different and I do wish they'd like picked up some parenting books or gone to counseling, but they did what they could with the knowledge that they had. And it's so much harder to do it in a different country than what you were brought up in. I was just about to say that they, they, they're not only battling with, you know, raising children, like we, like, which is very common, um, but they've got the cultural battles as well. And they, you know, and the fear of the unknown, it's so much is there, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, our culture is very performative. Like you have to come off a certain way. You're never allowed to talk about uh, family issues that you're having. So when you go to an event, you when you go to a gathering full of South Indian people, everyone's putting their best foot forward and only saying the nice things about their kids and their families. And, oh, my 
son got an A plus on his report, you know, and you never talk about, um, you never show any vulnerability. Mm. Um, and I think it was uh, even that, that much more stronger for my parents, like that, that um, requirement to like remain like stoic and not be vulnerable because they were in this place that was completely new to them and they were learning as they went and they just didn't want to show that they didn't have control over it, I guess. And yeah. And there's, there's so much trauma with, with being an immigrant as well. Like they faced a lot of racism. Absolutely. And, and for, you know, my dad had faced a lot of racism at work, even while getting his driver's test, he got failed four times for like no good reason. Like the, the, and my dad's not quick to, to attribute, um, like any sense of failure to things like racism, he'll always cop it himself. Like he'll always say, no, no, it was my fault. I should have done better. But even he was like the instructor was being racist. And he, this man, my dad has never had a, a fine in his life or an accident, you know, like he's such a great driver. <laughs> um, and my mum, it was so much, it was that much harder for her because she was a woman of colour terrible it's insidious isn't it the levels of racism in our society yeah so to manage all of that they had their own traumas growing up that I've a couple of which I've written about as well and then clashing with this other person that you've married and gone overseas with like this I can't imagine the amount of stress they would have faced so I I do honestly think that they were doing the best that they could um I'm so grateful, so great, because I'm living a life of privilege now because of their sacrifices. Mm. Um, but you know, we're all we're all adults now. Like we, gro- my sister and I, have grown up, and to look back on that and go, yeah, maybe it's a, a good idea to do family counselling now. Mm. Like you know, it's not easy. It's not. It's it's not a simple thing to to look back together and talk about the things that could have been done differently like you don't you can't change the past but it it counts for a lot to hear someone say yeah now knowing what I know now and having heard your feelings I wish I could do differently like I think that's a big thing for parents to recognize that parents who were abusive if they can you know Mm, absolutely Um, Ruthie I'm going to give you some advice yeah keep writing Oh, thank you, Cheryl. Mm-hmm. Beautiful, really beautiful. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. I feel as though you write beautifully, you speak beautifully, you're very considered, uh, and I want to hear more from you. Thank you so much, Cheryl. And if you do decide to write your memoir, I will be reading it. <laughs> I can't write, so that's not going to happen. <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, 
and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Jim. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.